Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage, here in Berlin and beyond. It's March, and that means everyone else is catching up to us. That is to say, it's Women's History Month. And today, the day we're sending out the show to you is International Women's Day. In some cities, like Berlin, there will be marches and demonstrations. In other places, concerts and tours, or workshops, even YouTube watch parties and champagne brunches, which the founders of the day would probably find a little alarming. Here on the podcast, it's time for the story of a woman you likely may never have heard of who has ties to this particular day. Our Lady of the Hour, or Half Hour, is Alexandra Kollontai. She was there in 1910 when Louisa Tietz and Clara Zetkin proposed the idea of an International Women's Day at the Second International Conference of Socialist Women in Copenhagen. Along with some other great dead ladies like Rosa Luxemburg, Alexandra Kollontai, and the other more than 100 representatives from 17 countries, voted in favor of a day honoring working women to promote equal rights and inspire action. It was time for change. After all, most women weren't able to vote at all at home. In pre-revolutionary Russia, Alexandra's home, aristocratic women's lives were expected to revolve around domesticity and family responsibilities. Sound familiar? And there wasn't much they had access to beyond that, certainly not higher education. Alexandra Kolontai saw that as a legacy of the past. She wanted to change things, and she did for herself, for the sake of love, and for many other women from different walks of life. Here's Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire with her story. So Alexandra Kollontai, she was born in 1872. And to start off, I'm going to surprise you with a little clip, <laughs> it won't be a surprise anymore, from the film Comrade X, starring the wonderful Hedy Lamarr uh, and Clark Gable. Uh, the film was made in 1940 by Americans and is set in Moscow, and it shows you what Americans thought the Soviet Union was like. And here they are at the registry office. Uh, you uh, don't feel nervous? What about? Marrying a stranger. This is nothing new to me. I married strangers before. Uh, how many? Only two. I, uh, I don't want to seem inquisitive, but uh, what did you do with them? Oh, I sent back the postal cards. Plain post office. You do not understand, comrade. When you get married, you're given a postal card. When you send the postal card back, marriage is over. You don't have to give any reason. No, it's all on the postal card. My first husband I met at a mass athletic exhibition. We shared the same horizontal bar. But Bostikov said he was wrong for me. His somersaults were no good. They were fine, but he was too animal. No ideals. I suppose number two was all right. To the contrary. When he took his shirt off, I realized I made a dangerous mistake. Ricketts? No, he had the portrait of the Tsar tattooed on his chest. That's tough. Yes, I felt bad. But he's at the Lubyanka prison now, so everything turned out all right. We are being married now, comrade. Excuse me, please. What is your name? Oh, uh, <clears throat> McKinley B. Thompson. Uh, here's on the passport. Oh, Americanitz. Si, senor. 
There we are. And it was actually, it was Alexander Kollontai who laid the groundwork for the new Soviet Union's marriage laws. I'm going to show you my favorite photo of her, uh, taken in 1920 at the Congress of Peoples of the East in Baku. And here she is, surrounded from, by women from all over the Soviet Union, looking kind of a little bit sharp, I would say, was the word. So in fact, from 1918 on, uh, the Soviet Union established civil marriages rather than church marriages. They did have easy, no-grounds divorces, although you, you did have to do more than send back a postcard. And the couple could take either the woman's or the man's name. Women could now work, obtain an education, exchange property without their husband's consent, which in West Germany they couldn't do until 1977. And Kollontai had worked hard to promote women's rights and activism, first as a Menshevik, then as a more radical Bolshevik, and finally as just a plain old communist. She was a member of the Bolshevik Central Committee in 1917 and pushed for the Russian Revolution. She made sure that women's concerns were heard by the men she fought alongside. But in fact, her life began quite differently. Here she is looking very, very sweet as a child lovely little ribbon in her hair. And as you can guess, a child who had her photo taken in the 1870s came from a minor aristocratic family in St. Petersburg. Scandalously, her mother had divorced her first husband and little Alexandra grew up with her older half-sisters. She was kept at home to kind of get, keep her out of trouble that her parents expected her to get into at school, but she was still voraciously curious, and she learned her first progressive ideas from her English nanny and her governess. At 18, uh, she fell in love with her cousin Vladimir, Vladimir Kolontai. Um, her parents were against it, but they married anyway three years later, and they had a little son, Mikhail, in uh, 1894, who was called Misha. By this point, Alexandra was already reading a lot of Marxist literature and she was teaching at workers' evening classes. She had a pivotal experience in 1896 right here at the Kreenholm Textiles Factory in Narva, which is now in Estonia, where she went with her husband, who was an engineer. Uh, he was working on improvements to the factory. Kollontai was shocked by the conditions. The, the so-called improvements that had been made were really negligible. The work was still incredibly unhealthy and exhausting. The workers were only allowed out of or off the island on Sundays, and they lived in dorms. Kollontai went into one, and I'm going to read you a little extract from her autobiography, which translates as, I have lived many lives, but it's not available in English, so I just translated this myself. On the floor, between the bunks, small children played, lay sleeping or fought and cried, looked after by a six-year-old girl. I noticed a boy who might have been the same age as my son, not moving on the ground. As I bent down to him, I was horrified to find he was dead. The tiny corpse lay among the playing children. When I asked what it meant, the six-year-old nanny answered calmly, it does sometimes happen to them that they die during the day. Auntie will come at six and take him away. And that really, that moment changed her life. 
she began running errands for the Marxist party. She was organizing strike funds and distributing leaflets. She eventually left her husband and son to go to Zurich and study Marxist economics. Women couldn't study in Russia. That was the end of their marriage, but they kind of co-parented um, from then on. Little Misha would live with her when she was around and with her, his dad when he, she wasn't. She wrote articles and books about, especially about workers in Finland. Her, her, her grandfather had come from a, a Finnish surf family uh, and he built up a timber business. Um, she agitated at strikes, she traveled and met other socialists around Europe. One of my favorite things she did was she would go to liberal feminist meetings and heckle. Um, what was happening was that rich women were recruiting their maids, their, so their servants, to, to help them campaign for votes for women, but in fact only for women who owned property, not for the maids themselves, which, I don't know, is really weirdly reminiscent of, <laughs> of a lot of people who call themselves feminists these days. Anyway. Kolontai gradually became more confident, as a speaker and a writer, she was aiming to recruit women workers to the socialist movement, and she started calling for armed uprising. That didn't escape the attention of the Tsarist police, um, and an arrest warrant was issued for her in 1908. She had to leave Russia and came to Berlin, where she hung out, of course, with Rosa Luxemburg, Clara Zetkin, and the whole gang, and helped uh, to establish International Women's Day at the Second Congress of Socialist Women in 1910 in Copenhagen. She traveled as a speaker um, around huge amounts of uh, small German towns where she was uh, surprised by all the beer that German socialists drank at their meetings. Um, she went to France, Belgium, Sweden, Britain, Switzerland, and twice to America. At the start of World War I, she was suddenly an enemy alien in Germany, so she and Misha um, escaped to Scandinavia, where she stayed until the beginning of 1917, when the first part of the revolution happened. Now, I'm not going to explain the Russian Revolution, sorry. It's really complex. But what you need to know is that working women and soldiers' wives played a key role. And uh, this picture here shows women protesting on the 8th of March, International Women's Day. The banners say, feed the children of the defenders of the motherland and increase payments to the soldiers' families, defenders of freedom and world peace. So Kolontai rushed back to what was then called Petrograd, received a warm welcome, and began calling for more revolution against the provisional government. She was elected to the city Soviet and to the Bolshevik Central Committee, which was when she first proposed a women's bureau in the party, which met with a lot of resistance, because surely the revolution would automatically solve all of women's problems. The Bolsheviks took power in November, which we call the October Revolution, because they had a different calendar to us, and that was followed by years of civil war. Kolontai was elected Commissar of Social Welfare, and you can see her here in her office drinking tea um, with some of her clients, if you like. She, her job was to look after orphans, war veterans, old people, lepers, the blind, basically the weakest in society. 
but she had to battle sabotage from the old guard, and she eventually resigned. We were hungry, she said. We rarely succeeded in getting a night's sleep. There were so many difficulties and dangers, but we all worked passionately, for we were in a hurry to build the new Soviet life and felt that everything we did today was desperately needed tomorrow, however rough and ready. She committed the Bolsheviks to providing free childcare and supporting mothers with paid maternity leave, something not all countries have now. She knew that the state could only improve the laws, but that women would actually have to fight for their own equality. That marriage law I talked about was the first law to be passed after the revolution. And uh, Kolontai wrote to her son, a big part of my energies, ideas, and struggles, and the example of my life have gone into this victory. Homosexuality was decriminalized shortly afterwards, and Kolontai was later a founding member of Magnus Hirschfeld's World League for Sexual Reform, which campaigned for greater openness around sex in policymaking. Not terribly successfully. Um, Kolontai was one of the first to marry, in fact, under this new law, a comrade who was 11 years younger than her, but their papers were promptly lost in the system, so that didn't count very much. Her next job was at the women's department, which was called Genotel, part of my Russian. Does anybody here actually speak Russian? Oh, thank goodness. Um, so the party finally came round to the idea of separate representation to help women. But Kolontai was already making enemies in high places, so she wasn't put in charge, but she did coordinate work with peasant women. The organization's aim was to support and represent women, to uphold the <laughs> principles of sexual equality, and to get women involved in political work. Kolontai wrote speeches and articles, she organized conferences, and she gave advice. She did become the director in 1920 and started working on women's sexual health and helping sex workers to get an education and move on to other work. She proposed successfully that factories set up childcare and canteens to lessen the load on women, which was another personal victory for her. The women's department sent its staff out to the Eastern Republics. They were teaching literacy, setting up childcare, and showing films, of course, about the benefits of Soviet life. Um, around this time, Kolontai was refining her ideas about love and sexuality in the new society, and she was publishing articles, including in this magazine, Rabotnitsa, which means the woman worker, um, they all had really great titles. My favorite is Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth. <laughs> right? From 1923. But there's also the really marvelous Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman, <laughs> which really says it all from 1926. Kolontai considered the nuclear family an oppressive relic and sexuality a natural human instinct. She aimed for what she called comradely solidarity, for equality in relationships and sensitivity in both men and women. After a lot of brief and uh, non-committal sexual relationships during the Civil War, which she referred to as wingless eros, she called for changes. 
Are we not liberating love from the fetters of bourgeois morality only to enslave it again, she wrote? Yes, my young friend, you are right. She believed the proletariat would find new ways of loving. Men and women will strive to express their love, not only in kisses and embraces, but in joint creativity and activity. The task of proletarian ideology is not to drive Eros from social life, but to rearm him according to the new social formation. Um, I find it super inspiring. Stalin did not. Um, Colin and I had joined a group called the Workers' Opposition, which criticised the government from the left, and she fell into disgrace. So in 1922, Stalin was named General Secretary and posted Colin to Oslo as part of a trade delegation, essentially to get rid of her. She was then appointed ambassador to Norway after the country recognised the Soviet Union officially in 1924, which made her the second female ambassador ever. The Soviet Union actually got rid of the first one. <laughs> she was Armenian. Anyway, um, very, she was very, very successful, but quite unconventional. She would eat with her entire staff around a large table every evening. She kept an open house for socialists and anti-fascists, and she had close local friends, which is kind of frowned upon in diplomatic circles, apparently, and especially close women friends. She was posted to Mexico, where, guess who she hung out with? There's no photo, but it was Frida Kahlo and her husband. Um, and you can see her here on the telephone, looking very efficient and also kind of stylish. She never lost that sense of style, even though uh, on the way back to Russia to join the revolution, her trunk went missing, so she, had, she only had one dress for the whole of the Ru Russian revolution. <laughs> and people... People really, um, it was easy to pick on her because she was writing about winged eros and she, she wrote novels and uh, it was all completely out there. Uh, and people would say, oh, she wears a different dress every time and she, was, she really only had one. She just had style. Uh, yes, anyway, Mexico wasn't terribly good for her health, so she resigned. And from 1929 and throughout World War II, she was ambassador to Sweden where she negotiated peace with Finland in 1944, only a year after being semi-paralyzed by a stroke. Tragically, sadly, horrifically, Stalin reversed many of the changes she'd introduced and cared about. His purges killed many of her friends in Russia and two of her ex-partners here on the left, um, Alexander Shlapnikov, and on the other side is Pavel Dibenko, her second husband, one who the, where the papers went missing. I think we can say she liked massages. <laughs> Do you remember the first husband? He also had one. He had a full beard. Anyway, um, her son Misha, though, survived. He is looking quite loving earlier on during her exile, probably taken in Norway. Maybe massages were just the fashion, I don't know. She died aged 80 of a heart attack a year before Stalin died, almost to the day. Um, she was the only member of the Bolshevik Central Committee 
which led the October Revolution, who wasn't killed in the purges, apart from Stalin, of course. You can see her here in old age with, I can count five medals, or there may be some kind of pineapple application, I don't know. <laughs> Still looking super impressive. Although her health suffered a lot, she was looked after by her, uh, one of her former secretaries who was a very good friend to her. Obviously, we're talking about the Soviet Union, so she did have her own stamp, but not until 1972, if you can see up the top there. Um, Alexandra Kolontai was a hugely determined woman who went her own way and fought for what she believed in. She rarely did what was expected of her, she went against her parents, her partners, the police, and if necessary, the party. And sometimes I like to think merely surviving Stalin is an act of resistance. Reading Kathy Porter's bio here on the left, I really got the sense that she cared deeply about people, and she had many good friends who cared about her back. Every time she leaves a place in the book, her friends hold a goodbye party for her. She loved deeply and unconventionally. I haven't gone into that, because there's just too much. But she found that love got in the way of her work because of the men's expectations of her. They wanted her to be a little wife, and she wasn't going to. And yet she never gave up on her principle of winged ear office. It's kind of crazy to read her writing about progress in socialism and at the same time love and eros and partnership and solidarity, it's gorgeous. Um, I've also, if you read German, I really recommend this tiny little book. It looks huge and I forgot to bring it on stage. It's about this big. Um, a tiny weeny print, which is uh, the kind of non edited, so it's the uncut version of uh, autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist, um, and also includes sexual relations and the class struggle. It has a killer intro by Barbara Kirchner. I'm just going to close with Barbara Kirchner's closing line on what we can learn from Kolontai. If you love someone, kiss them, or think of something else you both enjoy, but whatever you do, never leave that person, the person you love, alone in the wrong society. That's great, huh? Katie Darvisher and Alexandra Kolontai from the stage in Akud. Thanks to our friends there for their help, including Huey Ines Rami, our sound engineer. We could use your help. As you may know, we're working on providing accurate transcripts for our show, which costs extra time and money. Women's work, again. You can support us at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast and get some goodies back, from Dead Lady Show stickers to exclusive audio from our book club to hand-selected books from our contributors and about our dead ladies. And thank you so much to everyone who has already become a patron. Your love is almost as good as your money. I imagine Alexandra Kolontai would say it is even better. And we could use some of it. 
That means reviews of the show on iTunes or Stitcher or Podchaser, as it helps others find the show, and also following us on social media, at Dead Lady Show if you can, and sharing us with your friends or your enemies if they need some informing about Dead Ladies. That kicky music you're hearing is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on our website, deadladyshow.com, where there will also be some great images of Alexandra Kolontai and her revolutionary friends. My revolutionary friends are Florian Dowsons and Katie Derbyshire, who founded The Dead Lady Show back in 2015 to honor women forgotten and famous. This podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks for listening. I'm Susan Stone. Support for this episode of The Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.